0: Well, kids don't much like storms. Uh, whenever there's a big storm uh, around our house, uh, it's not uncommon for, uh, if it's at night, for Beth to come trotting down the uh, corridors and I can hear her footstep and uh, she wants a cuddle. She gets scared by storms, by the thunder, by the lightning. Uh, personally, uh, I actually really like storms. I-, I get really impressed by them. And I love the, the loud clap. I love the flash of lightning. I, I love the-, the-, the sound of the wind. I- 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 it impresses me. But, of course, there comes a point where I'll draw the line and I get too impressed and the storms start to scare me and when the loud clap comes directly overhead. uh, Storms, they're not always fun. They're not always fun. Uh, Many of you will remember on uh, Christmas Eve uh, 1974 when Cyclone Tracy hit, uh, there was a wind vane at the airport and uh, it registered winds of 217 kilometres an hour. That was before it got ripped out of the ground. Uh, they, they guessed that winds were actually more than 300 kilometres an hour. Uh, Faye uh was in uh, Darwin at the time, and uh, she recounts her story uh, that it, it, with the storm, with Cyclone Tracy brewing, uh, the house was shaking, her dog was scratching at the door, desperately wanting to get in because normally uh, Faye just let the, kept the dogs outside because of her children. Uh, she felt sorry for the dog and let the dog in. The dog went straight for the uh, the youngest child's uh, bedroom and grabbed the sheets on the cot and dragged the sheets out of the bed and the poor baby head banged against the, uh, the cot and started screaming. The dog left that room, went for the uh, next child's uh, bedroom, a three-year-old lying in bed and the dog grabbed the three-year-old and dragged it off the bed. And so now you've got the three-year-old screaming. And, of course, Faye's furious. You've got a cyclone she's trying to deal with. And now she's got So she kicks the dog out. The husband comes home, feels sorry for the dog, brings the dog back inside. The wife then goes, Faye says, what are you doing, this dog, this silly dog? But the dog immediately goes up to Faye and grabs her skirt and tries to lead her to the door. Finally, Faye realises the dog is trying to get her out of the house. As she looks up, she can see the iron girders of the roof starting to lift and they click, they grab their kids, whatever they can, and they rush out. And thankfully, before in a few minutes, the whole house collapsed. Storms like this, you're looking for signs of them coming to an end. You're looking for a shaft of light somewhere, a spot of sunshine. You're looking for the return of a glorious day, aren't you? That's really the structure, the ebb and flow of the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah starts with a dark, dark storm. It is a dark storm that we just read in chapter 1, a storm of catastrophe and violence and destruction and the wrath of God. As you move through the book, shafts of sunlight seem to break through and they break up into spots of sunshine and by the time you get to the end of the book... It is a glorious day. Chapter 3 is a glorious day that God has for his people, restored to them in perfection. But today as we are bunker down in chapter 1, we are in the middle of the storm of God's anger. And the warning that we hear from Zephaniah 1 is that God judges sin. He judges sin, even your sin. And so we are to seek the Lord. He judges sin, and so we're to seek the Lord. More of that in a little bit. First, I I should uh, uh, just give you a bit of a background as to Zephaniah and where he fits into the Bible story. Uh, Zephaniah was about uh, 620 years before Jesus, 620 BC. Um, Hopefully you can remember something of the Old Testament history. You've got uh, King David uh, setting up Israel. Uh, Solomon then, he builds the temple and the palace and all that sort of stuff and he's the third king of Israel. And then after Solomon, Israel splits in civil war and you have the north and they're called Israel and you have the south and they're called Judah. By the time of Zephaniah, the north have gone. They've disappeared. They have been totally annihilated and destroyed and assimilated by the, uh, the world power at their time of Assyria. That happened about 100 years before Zephaniah. Zephaniah, at 620 BC, he's from Judah, because they still exist. He's from Judah, and at the time of Zephaniah, the the, uh, great army of Babylon is now the world power, and they are dawning on Judah, ready to pounce and to destroy. And a mere 10, 15 or so years after Zephaniah, Babylon comes through and wipes Judah out. But Zephaniah's before Judah uh, Babylon comes to wipe them out and so Zephaniah in that context with the dawn of Babylon seeming to break down upon Jerusalem uh, he starts his words of prophecy in uh, verse 2 a word that the whole world is going to be destroyed verse 2 of Zephaniah chapter 1 I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth declares the Lord I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth. What we have here is God saying he is going to undo his creation. It's a decreation. He's going to destroy the earth. Uh, Even the very way in which it's listed in verse 3, it's the exact reversal of what we get in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God makes the fish of the sea, then the birds of the air, then the animals, and then men. Here, in verse 3, God says, I'm going to wipe out men, and then I'm going to wipe out the birds, uh, the animals, and then the birds, and then the fish. It's just a way of saying it's a complete reversal. God is going to undo his creation. He is going to wipe out the earth. Now, if you're Judah at the time of Zephaniah, it's possible that you're actually hearing these words and thinking it's great news because God's here promising the end of the earth. But if you're Judah, you're probably thinking, yeah, that's fine, but I'm one of the people of God. I'm of Judah, and so I'm safe. And come on, God, bring on that day. But then crashing into their world comes verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. And against all who live in Jerusalem, I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. Judah has become like the nations. As we just read in those verses, she's calling on Baal. She's calling on Molech. She's appealing to the starry host. She's engaged in idolatry. She has, in verse 6, turned back from following the Lord. She is not seeking the Lord. She is not inquiring of the Lord. Verse 6 is a really good uh, summary of what we've just read. Turning back from the Lord and instead seeking after other gods not seeking the Lord, not inquiring of him. We're going to hit back on these ideas uh, in a little bit later. Their idolatry and their refusal to inquire of God and instead to inquire of other gods, God says in verse 7, the day of the Lord is near. And not only has Judah become idolatrous, but Judah was also complacent. Because Judah thought that, sure, you know all these sins and stuff, but God's not going to do anything about it. God's not going to do anything good or bad. They were thinking of God more like a dormant volcano, a volcano that just sort of sits there, like Mount Warning up in the north coast near New South Wales, just sits there but not doing anything, never going to erupt. They think God's a dormant volcano where actual fact he's about to erupt. Have a look at uh, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, And punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. Their idolatry, their complacency, their mocking of God that he doesn't care and he can and will do nothing... And so the day of the Lord is near, Zephaniah keeps telling them. For Judah, as they heard these words of Zephaniah, the message was clear. God judges sin, yes, even yours. Even yours, the day of the Lord is coming. And it'll make Cyclone Tracy seem like a whisper. Have a listen to Zephaniah's description of it in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior will be there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet. And battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I'll bring distress on the people and they'll walk like blind men because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them. On the day of the Lord's wrath in the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Uh, Recently, Catherine and I were able to head off to Sydney and uh, we uh, stumbled across the World Journalistic Photography uh, Competition winners in uh, the New South Wales State Library. And there really were some magnificent photos uh, in this exhibition, uh, photos of sport. Uh, Some guy literally had his hand inside another guy's eye. It was amazing. Uh, There were photos of nature. Uh, But perhaps the most most impacting photos, at least on me, were the photos of war where you had pictures of soldiers, uh, weary, just simply exhausted, lying back with their eyes shut, weary from battle and from duty. Uh, Soldiers weeping because of the things that they've seen and the things that they've had to do. But perhaps the, the worst, if I can describe it like that, the worst of all were the pictures of women holding their injured, if not dead, children and husbands screaming crying, weeping, wailing, caught up in the bloodbath, caught up in the middle of war and tragedy and violence and death. The day of the Lord is coming and those photos are nothing. Those moments of history that those women have endured, as terrible as they are, are nothing compared to the coming day of the Lord. A day of darkness and blackness and gloom and wrath and distress and anguish and trouble and death and destruction. We are in the middle of a dark, dark storm in Zephaniah 1. A dark, dark storm. God is coming against the sin of the world in all. Awful judgment. This is not something people like to hear. It's something that many Christians don't like to hear. Uh, We prefer a God of love, a God of peace, a God of harmony, a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of grace. You might have heard it said, uh, I prefer the God of the New Testament rather than the God of the Old Testament. Uh, But before we uh, head down uh, that track, let me read to you uh, some words of Jesus. Uh, He told parables, many of them, and here's one where he describes the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 13, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore, and they sat down and collected the good fish in the baskets but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, these words from Jesus again, a little bit earlier in Matthew, chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The God of the old, the God of the new, there's no difference. He's the one God, the one true and living God, who is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of wrath. And the marvel of marvels about God is that he keeps it all perfectly in unison. He doesn't get angry when he's not meant to get angry. He gets angry and it's just and it's right. There's no un, uh, uh, injustice. There's no unfairness. God in his wrath, when he comes, it is perfectly right. And it is horrifyingly awful. And the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will return and he will. He will send people to hell in horrifying fury he will send people to hell the day of the lord is coming this is a hard truth don't you reckon if you've got uh, friends or family members who haven't got their trust in jesus to take their sins away this is a hard hard truth don't you reckon to think that my loved ones might go to hell it's a truth we need to wrestle with it but i want to admit up front it's a hard truth it's a very hard truth if anything it spurs us on doesn't it to not be ashamed of the cross as we've already sung that they too might put their trust in jesus and be saved this is a hard truth But it's a truth that God's very clear about. It's a truth we don't want to escape. And it's a truth we have to wrestle with. For Judah, with Babylon bearing down on them, God was about to use uh, Babylon as his agent of wrath for their day of the Lord uh, to come against them in untold carnage. And so Zephaniah appeals to Judah and he says, Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. You never know. You might be spared. Have a look at our chapter 2 and verse 1 of Zephaniah. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Did you hear his appeal? Before, guys, before the Lord comes, before the day of the Lord, before he comes in fierce anger, before, seek the Lord. Perhaps, maybe, there's a chance you'll be sheltered perhaps seek the lord and notice that this is for the godly as well in verse three seek the lord all you humble of the land you who do what he commands perhaps you'll be spared this in the book of zephaniah is the first shaft of light we've been in the middle of a dark dark storm and this is the first shaft of light breaking through that maybe there's a there's a way out maybe you can be sheltered maybe you can be hidden from the lo, from the wrath of god now for us this side of jesus who has already died and risen again for us this shaft of light this perhaps this maybe this hopeful this this almost wishful thinking this side of jesus it changes into absolute certainty with no doubt No questions. Have a look at 2 Corinthians. Turn with me, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5. Earlier on in this chapter, in chapter 5, Paul has uh, explained to the Corinthians that everyone will have to stand before the seat of, of God's judgment seat. And he's explaining to them how in Jesus and in his death, uh, we can be forgiven for our sins. And he he sort of closes up here in a climax in verse 21, chapter 5, verse 21. Hear these incredible words of comfort, this incredibly shaft of light, brilliant shaft of light. Verse 21, God made him, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Anyone who turns to the Lord Jesus now receives God's favour. Anyone who begs God for mercy for the forgiveness of their sins receives God's salvation. Anyone who turns to God in repentance and faith and says, I'm sorry, please forgive me, gets his help. Now is the day of salvation. Now, because the Lord Jesus, when he died on a cross, he suffered God's anger at our sin for us. He who had no sin became sin for us. The storm and the fury of God's wrath was poured out upon his head. And if we trust in him, we have no, no fear of judgment, no fear of condemnation, no fear of wrath, none, zero. Because of Jesus who has already endured it for us on the cross. If we trust in Jesus, the storm is gone. Uh, in the 18th century uh, there was a, uh, an English uh, minister of the Church of England called Augustus Toplady uh, and he was in the 18th century and he was one day trapped in a storm and uh, on, he was on his way home and the clouds suddenly burst open and there was torrential wind, torrential rain uh, and he uh, needed to escape from the rain because he wasn't home he was out in the countryside and he found a uh, rocky overhang. There had been this rock that had been split open and he could enter into the rock and hide from the storm. And as he sheltered from the storm in this cleft of rock, it reminded him of the way that we can be sheltered from the storm of God's wrath when we hide in Jesus. Uh, Many of you probably know he wrote the hymn, Rock of Ages. Uh, I'm just going to put the first verse up for you. The first verse of Rock of Ages goes, in speaking of Jesus, "Rock of Ages." I'd sing it, but it'd be embarrassing. "Rock of Ages: cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power." Augustus knew that in Jesus, you can hide from the storm he could hide in a rock from a from a windy rainy storm we can hide in jesus from the fury of god at our sin if you put your trust in jesus the storm has been weathered jesus has already been there done it and you need not do it again your trust in jesus complete forgiveness the wrath of god already spent and we are set free we are set free. Now these words of Corinthians that we've just sort of read, just like they were in Zephaniah, they're written to those who are already belonging to God. Remember in uh, verse 3, the appeal to seek the Lord was actually to those who are the godly in the land, those who do his commands. And so as God's people here today, for those of us that are, we too... Are to seek the Lord. Where to seek the Lord? For Judah, they were to seek the Lord because there was a chance they might be sheltered from the fury of God's wrath. For us, we're to seek the Lord because we will be sheltered from the day of the Lord and his wrath that comes when Jesus returns. So, how do we seek the Lord? How do we seek the Lord? We're going to take our cue from Zephaniah. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 1, uh, Zephaniah pronounced his judgment on Judah. Why? Because they were idolatrous and they did not seek, uh, they did not inquire of the Lord. And so we're going to think about those two things. First, we're not to seek idols, we're to seek God. What idols are out there that tempt us, that lure us, that entice us away from seeking after God and Him alone? I think in Australia, perhaps, uh, one of the uh, biggest gods out there that seeks to distract us and to entice us away from seeking after God himself is security, being safe, being comfortable. Uh, We like to be secure in many ways. We like to shore up our little lives. Uh, We do it with our health. Health is just one of those issues that is is big to so many of us, to all of us. And, and don't get me wrong, it's good to have your health. Of course it is. But is, is your health driving what you're doing with your life? Is your health determining and shaping everything you do? There, there's a little saying out there, as long as you're healthy, that's the main thing. That's rubbish. I know plenty of healthy people who are headed for hell. It's rubbish. It's rubbish and we don't want to live our lives completely dominated i'll say it again it's good to have good health but it's not the main thing we don't run our lives seeking after health what are we going to do when we get cancer what are we going to do when our loved ones get sick and die what are we going to do when we just we 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 can't see the day when we're ever going to be healthy again what what do we say then god's not real god's not true We also seek security and wealth, a chasing after wealth and money and possessions that we might be happy and secure and safe. Again, there's nothing wrong with wealth. Uh, we did a series at the end of last year with uh, Paul, remember, on uh, generosity and giving and money. There's nothing wrong with wealth. But wealth and sex are the two biggest topics in the bible that god keeps telling us make sure you don't get fooled make sure you don't get tricked make sure it do, they don't drag you away from me and so it's it's fine to have money of course it is of course it is god's good gift but we are not to have wealth as our god using it to give us power and safety and security what are we going to say when our wealth disappears what do we say? God's not real? Of course he's real. Of course he's real. We need to make sure that wealth isn't what shapes our life. That wealth isn't what um, what we're trying to do with our life. Last one, similar to that one. We're not to seek our security in education. Education is such a big thing in Australia. It is a huge thing and we're, we're so worried and careful and, and zealous for our kids to get the best education they can. And again, let me say it again, there's nothing wrong with a good education. Nothing wrong with it. But perhaps we need to ask ourselves, why am I so hung up on my kids' education? Why? Would it matter if they didn't get the best? Why does it matter to me so much? Is it so that when they leave school they'll be able to get the best job that they possibly can so that they can find their security in wealth. Why? Again, hear me clearly, nothing wrong with a good education. Nothing wrong with it. But we just need to be careful that it's not our God, that we're not slavishly pursuing everything in our lives revolving around my education or my kids' education because there's going to be plenty of not very intelligent people Bound for glory in eternal life in the new creation, and there 's going to be plenty of really, really smart people who will suffer at the hands of the one true living God. All right, there 's the idols of health, wealth and education. Instead, we're to be people who seek the Lord, and we 're to do that, as Zeph and I would say, by inquiring of him, by looking to God to know what He wants. We need to be people who seek the Lord. We want to know how to please him and how to obey him. We want to know uh, how does he reckon we should live our lives? Where should we go? What direction should we have in our life, God? Where do we look for blessing? Where do we look for security? Where do we look for salvation? God, we seek the Lord. We want to know him. We want to know what he likes and what he doesn't like. We want to know what pleases him and what doesn't please him. We want to know what he thinks our direction for life should be. We want to know what he thinks is important and what he thinks is not important. We want to know what he's done, what he is doing, what he will do. We want to know how we're caught up in all of these grand plans of God. We want to seek the Lord, don't we? We want to seek the Lord because he's good. Because the day of the Lord is coming, but we are sure of salvation. We want to seek the Lord. We do not inquire of the Financial Review or the Women's Weekly or Cosmopolitan or whatever it is. They're not our guides for life. They're not our understanding of what life is about and who God is. And We just need to open up our Bibles and hear God shout at us. As clear as day as we read his word, there we will know him what he's like, what he's doing, what he has done, what he will do, how to please him, what direction our life should have, what meaning our lives had, the sorts of things we should be involved in, how important things are and how trivial other things are. We seek the Lord simply by inquiring of him as we open up our Bibles. And so your life and my life, it should be a wet life. It should be saturated in the word of God. As we seek him. Why do we seek him? Because the day of the Lord's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And we will find shelter on that day in Jesus and his death for us. And so we seek the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to say right up front, you are our great and glorious god and we tremble at the thought of your wrath and fury the day when your son returns to bring in your judgment upon the wicked and upon the sin of the world and we want to readily admit our own sin that we are part of the uh, all that is evil and wrong but father we are just so grateful for your Son, our Lord Jesus, who came and died willingly for us, that your wrath might be poured out on him instead of us. Father, thank you. And so we pray that our trust would always be in him as our Lord and Saviour, that we would seek him by reading your word, digesting it, living by it, believing you as we hear you speak to us in the Bible. Father, please, Keep us free from idols. Amen.